Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've had a fascinating first hour. We will take more of your calls on all the subjects that came up uh, during that. Council tax has got quite a few of you wound up because, of course, what we do know uh, is that the councils waste an awful lot of our money. The councils collect even more money uh, every single year that passes. Everything's going up by an average of around about £75 per household this year. And most of it is going to go on the pensions and the salaries of the people who work inside the councils. The services are getting worse. The services are getting uh, much, much more more likely to be delivered less times and less often. And unfortunately for everybody out there, uh, you get less and less for your money. I think it's an absolute disgrace and something should be done about it. I'll tell you what else is a disgrace. Emmanuel Macron gets up and decides to kickstart the uh, European elections, which take place, of course, in May, and decides to have a massive go at Britain and Brexit. He's basically saying that what we need in Europe is a European renaissance uh, to stop the kinds of ideas that Brexit has generated. He says that it was all... uh, based on lies. He says that it's the biggest problem for Europe since the Second World War uh, and he says that uh, the manipulations are absolutely and utterly disgraceful. He said we should stand upright, proud and lucid. Well, it's all very well for Emmanuel Macron to say he wants to stand upright, proud and lucid but I'm afraid the people in his country, i.e. the French, don't think very much of him. They're out there protesting every single weekend. The gilets jaunes, uh, as they are called, the yellow vests, uh, they're all out there were rioting, demonstrating, uh, having tear gas thrown at them, uh, getting beaten up by the police because they don't like Mr Macron, uh, they don't like his policies, they don't like his global Europeanism, and they certainly don't like the idea uh, that he wants to be friends and uh, sort of um, uh, holding hands with every single other European country. He's also having a go at the democratically elected populist leaders of places like Hungary and Italy. Well, I've got a message for you, Monsieur Macron. Uh, Mind your own business and steal uh, your own people for what it is that you want to do to them because at the end of the day you have got more problems in France than we are ever going to have in this country of Great Britain 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number you're listening to me Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio
Now, for some bizarre reason, there are some idiots in this country who think putting on a yellow vest makes you more than just a fire warden in your local office. It actually means that you're some kind of free spirit, that you're some kind of right-wing um, saviour of the world, and that you can go out and start waving Union Jacks and pretend that you're like one of the gilets jaunes uh, over in France and you're going to change the world. Well, you're not. So don't copy them. If you want to make some kind of statement and if you want to be part of some kind of movement, find your own one. Find your own movement. Wear a vest that's a different colour or something. Please. 0344 499 1000. Now, uh, to get some sense into this debate, because I really do think that Emmanuel Macron has got ideas above his station. I really think he's much more fond of himself than anybody else is. Uh, Monsieur Philippe Legrand. Uh, Legrand is going to talk to us, uh, visiting senior fellow to the European Institute at the LSE. Philippe, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'm sorry if I sound a little bit hysterical here, but, uh, you know, I really get wound up by politicians who think they stand for people and talk for people and uh, apparently relate for people all the feelings of the country which they represent, when in fact they get it so wrong themselves. Oh, well, I think Emmanuel Macron clearly speaks for uh, many people, not just in France, uh, but also across Europe. Clearly not for you and clearly not for many people in Britain. Uh, but he's published an opinion piece which has been published across all 28 uh, EU member states, uh, which, as you say, um, is set in the context of Brexit, but looking forward to the upcoming uh, European Parliament elections, um, and, and which sets out uh, the threat that nationalism pose, poses, the false solutions which are peddled not just by Brexiteers, but also by the likes of Orban and Salvini, um, uh, and, you know, puts out a manifesto for change. Now, I don't agree with everything that he says, at the same time, I think that he has a right to say it, just as people who disagree with him have a right to uh, disagree with him. And one of the features of, a, of the new world we live in with social media and so on uh, is that there is a European politics uh, developing and that, uh, that people um, uh, have debates across borders about all sorts of issues, not just within Europe, but globally. And that's a good thing. It is a good thing. But don't you think that there are an awful lot of people in France who, for example, do not approve of him? His approval ratings are pretty low, aren't they? Uh, they are low. They've bounced back, actually, uh, recently, first of all, because um, French people have got fed up with the, so the so-called Chile Jaune Yellow Vest movement um, because it's become increasingly violent and because they've talked of going into politics and it's been captured by the far right, uh, but also because he, President Macron has embarked on a listening exercise, um, sort of town hall meetings across France, uh, where he's engaged um, uh, with citizens on a whole um, you know, set of issues that they've raised, and therefore his popularity ratings have actually bounced back. So what is it now, then? It's something like 36% up from 24 mm, OK. And so um, as far as the European project is concerned, he's obviously a great defender of that, and he wants to be out front kind of promoting it. But it's not really the case that the rest of Europe is going along with him, because, as we say, uh, the Hungarians and the Italians, for a start, are not particularly happy. The Spanish are looking to try and get a Catalonian independence movement going, which the European Union doesn't want them to do. Um, there's not much happiness over in Eastern Europe. So, you know, the pan-European thing is all very well, but there's an awful lot of dissent there as well, isn't there? Well, I mean, you know, there's a debate um, both across countries and within countries about um, uh, what the future of their own country and what the future of Europe should look like. That's why there are European elections in, in May. Uh, and there is, you know, Emmanuel Macron rep represents a certain view, which is kind of socially liberal, progressive, uh, pro-EU. Uh, and, you know, he's more representative, I'd say, of European opinion than the likes of Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, or Matteo Salvini in, uh, uh, in Italy. Um, yeah, but not in Hungary and Italy, though. 
Well, I mean, in in Hungary, yes, you're right that, that, that there's a majority support for Viktor Orban, but Viktor Orban is only the head of a, one small country, and across Europe, there are probably more people that agree with um, with Macron than do with Orban. In any case, I mean, as I said, this is a, this is a political debate. Um, it's ahead of European elections. I think it's healthy um, that there should be a battle of ideas. I think you know um, one of the arguments that's often made against the EU is that it's too technocratic and there isn't you know enough politics. Uh, and the fact that we're, we're having a political debate, I think, is healthy. No, sure. But don't you think the real root of the, the problem with Europe is that they're slightly worried that if Brexit is a success, that other countries might look at it and go, well, you know what, maybe we should do that as well. And Europe, and as, a, as, a, as a group, is probably in a weaker place at the moment than it's been for a while. Uh, that, was a, that was the fear immediately after the referendum that other countries might follow. And there was you know, worries, for example, that Marine Le Pen would win the French elections and, and lead France out. Uh, I think that Brexit is seen across Europe uh, to be uh, such a car crash um, uh, that uh, that has changed dramatically. Yeah, but in the words of the yeah, Remainers... Hang on, hang on a second. First of all, you've seen support for the EU rise. And second of all, you've seen far-right parties that previously were advocating leave the European Union have now changed their tune. So you see, for example, uh, in Italy, uh, the, the, the far-right leader who previously was talking about leaving now wants to actually take over the EU uh, and hijack it to his own purposes. So in a sense, they're pursuing a different agenda, which is not following Britain out, which is seen to be uh, a disaster. Well, no, uh, but that's, trying, that's, but, this, but, that's but trying, this week, but trying, to, but trying to reshape the, 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 the European Union to their own ends. But that's, of course, this week's view. The point is that, that surely once Brexit happens, as the Remainers would say, only then will we find out whether it's a success or not. At the moment, what we get is a lot of fear-mongering fear from various people saying, oh, it's all going to be terrible, and it doesn't look as if it's being terribly well organised. But when it does happen eventually, only then can you judge if it's a success. And if it is a success, which is what I was saying, you may find other countries wanting to follow suit. And I think that's what Brussels is worried about. Like, like I said, so far uh, it's widely seen not to be a success. And so yeah, but it hasn't far, happened yet. And, and the people who and the people who were advocating similar strategies have changed their tune. You're of course right that the future, who knows what will happen in the future, and in the unlikely event it's shown it, it proves to be a success. You're right that other people might, um, uh, might might decide that they want to leave too. I mean, one of the things that Macron says yesterday: I believe in a Europe that protects its values and its borders. Well, France has not been very good at doing that, has it? Uh, why do you say that? Uh, well, I could say that the people who came and shot everyone in the Bataclan seemed to go backwards and forwards from Brussels, from Belgium pretty easily. Uh, that that is true. Some of them some of them were born in Belgium and they moved. Well, they were living forward. in Belgium, weren't they? Yeah, and 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 the people who caused the 9/11, uh, you know, the United States have secured its borders, and the people who were 9/11 bombers. Came I'm not talking about 9/11. I'm talking about. Come on, Philip. Come on, Philip. I'm talking about France. The idea that just because. Some terrorists cross borders, but therefore um, the, the, the problem is, is, is borders. I think it's kind of simplistic, unless you're going to say that nobody can cross borders at all. Well, I mean, one of the arguments about the freedom of movement in the European Union uh, is, is about borders. It's one of the biggest issues in the, the whole debate, isn't it? And one of the reasons that people voted to leave the European Union in Britain was because they weren't happy about the immigration situation. And what you know, as well as I do, is that there's an awful lot of travelling of people through France to uh, the, the English Channel when they then come here. There's plenty of movement on the borders. For him to say that he believes in the Europe that protects its values and its borders, I think is rather nebulous, to be honest. Well, I know. He, first of all, he's talking about 
um, protecting the external borders uh, of the Schengen area. Second of all, Britain was never part of the Schengen area, which is the passport-free travel. And therefore, Europeans coming to Britain, uh, as indeed uh, Britons coming back to Britain, have their passports checked and always have had their passports checked. Uh, and those who flag up as terrorist suspects can uh, be intercepted uh, at that point, as indeed they can be followed um, within uh, the country. So I think, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, I, I, I agree that the, the issues were all jumbled together during the Brexit referendum. Uh, but the idea that membership of the European Union opened the door to terrorism in Britain, I think, is, is not no, true. I'm not saying it opened the door to terrorism. I'm just saying France has not been very good at protecting its borders. I mean, I'm all for, I'm all for somebody like you, Philip, defending Macron and being a fan of his. But you've got to see the reality of the situation. He's a politician. He's making statements, some of which need to be questioned. Well, no, what he's talking about is he's saying uh, he's saying actually, if we are to ha maintain the Schengen area. Uh, which involves passport-free travel uh, across those countries, uh, that Europe needs to defend its external borders. So, in effect, um, instead of the border control taking place at national level, it takes place at the external border of the European Union. Uh, and so, actually, he, in, in a sense, he's, he's agreeing uh, with you that you need stronger borders. OK. And what does he think he means when he says that he wants a common defence policy in Europe? I think one of the thing, big things that have changed since the Brexit referendum, obviously, is the election of President Trump. And President Trump has several times threatened to pull out of NATO. Um, and, and therefore, Europeans need to think much more seriously about uh, how they defend themselves when they are surrounded from threats, whether it's from Vladimir Putin's Russia, whether it is from um, uh, Islamic State, whether it's through instability um, uh, in, in, in North Africa. And therefore, Europeans need to be much more serious about their own defense. Now, there are two countries in Europe that have an independent uh, or have, have a nuclear weapons. That's Britain and France. Britain is leaving uh, the EU. France, therefore, has a special responsibility within the EU, within the EU uh, about moving forward with a common defence policy uh, for, as a safeguard uh, in case uh, the Americans are no longer willing to defend us. Hmm. Well, France is not in NATO, is it? France is in NATO. Oh, is it? OK. So what is, what is he proposing, though? Does that mean that we'd all have to be part of some form of new um, European sort of defence force? Well, I mean, there are two sort of um, movements towards defence cooperation beyond NATO. Uh, one is a kind of um, weekly structured one called PESCO, which is kind of open to uh, m many uh, countries. That France has put forward um, a deeper form of cooperation, which is not exclusive to the EU and which involves Britain, um, uh, which, um, uh, which is harder edged and potentially uh, has an important role to play uh, if we could no longer rely uh, on America's uh, NATO guarantee. And what would that mean for Britain, then, do you think? Well, I mean, obviously, what form it takes after Britain leaves the EU um, uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but uh, whether or not we're in the EU, um, we remain on the continent, we remain in geographically uh, in Europe, uh, and we face very similar threats. And therefore I, makes, I think, therefore, I think it makes sense to continue collaborating and indeed deepen our collaboration in order to remain safe. So what do you think is going to happen in May, then, at these elections? Is there going to be some kind of shift back to the European project? Do you think there's going to be uh, more support for the people like Macron, or is there going to be more support for some of the smaller parties? Well, I mean, you know, the, the polls um, uh, suggest that the, at, the, at the moment there's a grand coalition, the European Parliament, between the centre-right and the centre-left, who therefore kind of run the Parliament together. And polls suggest that they're no longer going to have a majority together, and therefore the parliament will be 
more fluid and more political. There's going to suggest that there will be an increase in support um, for social liberals um, like Macron. At the same time, there'll be an increase in support for um, sort of far-right nationalists uh, like uh, Orban and, and, and Salvini. And so what do you think will happen as far as the British MEPs are concerned? Because I've heard two versions of what might happen, i.e. if we have, have some kind of agreement before um, the elections actually take place, but not before March the 29th, that there will be a situation where the MEPs from Britain stay sort of in situ and they don't take part in the elections and then they just leave when, when Europe fi- finally splits up with Britain. Or uh, the MEPs have to run a proper election campaign. Well, there is a a vigorous uh, legal debate going on about that um, and um, you know, one view is that um, legally Britain has to hold uh, elections if it is still a member. Uh, others say that um, uh, well, legally uh, it might have to but in practice if it doesn't um, that the, the European Parliament can still constitute itself um, uh, assuming that Britain is going to leave um, in, in a short order after those elections. And, if- and certainly one consideration that you know, Theresa May will want to avoid uh, in the now increasingly likely chance of an Article 50 extension is um, the need to hold um, uh, European elections, uh, which would be a bit of a farce and an invitation to a protest vote. Well, it would really, wouldn't it? Because if they did get elected, then presumably they couldn't, fill out, they couldn't fulfil their term, given that, uh, that before the term was up, Britain would inevitably leave. Uh, yes, it would be. I mean, you know, in the in, in, given that most likely uh, Britain is soon going to be out of the EU, it would be um, a bit of a farce to hold those elections. And any any MPs who were elected might not even end up taking up taking up their seats since the first session of Parliament yeah. until July. And once those seats do disappear, what happens then in the European Parliament? Well, do they, do they get reallocated? Well, that's the complication. Some of them have already been reallocated to other European countries, and in which case, if there were to be elections in Britain, uh, the uh, the MPs from the countries to which they've been reallocated would not be able to take up their seats until Britain actually left. Some of them have been held back in reserve um, for future members of the European Union. And what's the logic of, of sort of reissuing them to other countries? Um, because with Britain leaving, there was a, it was, a decision was made that that um, it was a good opportunity to provide more representation but to why countries would you want population who'd risen. But I just doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, that's just more money spending, isn't it? No, well, some, some, countries had, you know, some countries had seen their population rise, and therefore it made sense to give them more representation oh, right. um, within the Parliament. That'll be because of those borders again, won't it? Philip, listen, thanks very much indeed. Philip Legrand, uh, visiting senior fellow uh, to the European Institute at the LSE. Obviously a big fan of Macron, big fan of the European Union. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you can still be a fan of the European Union and want to leave it, can't you? More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. The 
This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000 on the subject of Europe. Sean has tweeted at Talk Radio, EU Parliament doesn't make laws, can't alter laws, and can't stop laws without the nuclear option of sacking the Commission, which it will never use. Call that democracy. The EU Parliament is an expensive and pointless joke. And on the subject of uh, that school in Birmingham uh, where the Muslim parents removed 600 kids from the classrooms because they didn't want them being taught about LGBT relationships, uh, Minor says it should not be a primary school's job to teach about relationships and sex of any persuasion. Uh, leave that for the secondary schools. And uh, Stu says the same. Couldn't agree with you more, MG. No way is a four or five-year-old ready for these types of conversations. The guy, and I think he means Peter Tatchell, is talking rubbish, utter rubbish. Sex education is for high school, bottom line. I think that's absolutely right. And if you, as a parent, you don't know what to do uh, or what to tell your kids, then you need to get a life and learn how to do it, basically. 0344 499 Now let's talk uh, to the former Queen of Downing Street, uh, Katie Perrier, uh, was Director of Communications at Number 10, of course, for Theresa May, when it was all going so well. Ever since she's left, it's all gone to pot, I'm afraid. Katie, uh, very, very good morning to you. Good morning. I should employ you to do my public relations from now on, Mike. <laughs> well, How I mean, it's no, it's, no, me? it's no coincidence, is it, that ever since you left, it's all literally gone to hell in a handcart? Well, I mean, you know, it was that terrible, terrible election, which no doubt she continues to regret because if she had a stronger majority in Parliament, she wouldn't be faced with the kind of dilemma she's got right now where half of her cabinet are threatening to walk out because they're Brexiteers and the other half are threatening to walk out because they're Remainers. She's kind of stuck right in the middle with no one kind of covering her back. So I don't envy her for a minute and I'm glad I'm not there. Well, exactly. And also one of the reasons that we keep hearing why Chris Grayling is still in, in situ, despite the fact that now everybody's calling for his resignation. I think even his family is saying, maybe actually he's not very good at anything. <laughs> um, you know, it's basically because he's like the only one left. He's the, sort of the last guy standing who was with her at that time. Well, yes, and indeed, not just the, the members of the cabinet, the staff behind the scenes. There's been a massive turnover at number 10. So lots of people that were there with me um, are no longer there. In fact, I was at a party at the Palace last night. Oh, really? And, How nice yes, for you. Just drop, just drop that in, Mike. <laughs> um, and um, uh, there's several people there, and they said, oh, we've gone to work for the Royals because we, you know, we really believe in public service, but we just didn't want to be around number 10 anymore. We didn't want to be around Parliament anymore. So they feel that the whole atmosphere is toxic. Yeah, and decided to get out. So yeah, it's it's a very high turnover of, of staff, and um, you know this time next week we could be having a high turnover of cabinet as well. Well, exactly, and I mean we'll come back to that in a minute because one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because I read this at the weekend and thought now this is a job for Katie Perrier if ever there was one, and this was of course the story that uh, that came out in one of the Sunday papers about why she said simples at Prime Minister's questions over the uh, uh, last Wednesday session. Because everybody kind of went, you know, Theresa May, she's not known for making little jokes. She's not known for, for te- sort of tipping the wink to uh, to cultural points or, or, or touch points or anything like that. And she suddenly said simples from the old, uh, you know, the advert for the insurance. And everyone thought, well, why did she do that? And it turns out that it was the result of a bet. Indeed, but she wasn't part of that. No. It was a bet between one of her senior advisors, Stephen Kennedy, who's an MP, and another um, an MP, uh, Simon Hoare. And they said, if you get the Prime Minister to say that about Brexit, look, you know, just sign the deal, simple. Then we, one of you will, will buy me dinner at the Ritz, tea at the Ritz. And um, at, first of all, um, we all play practical jokes in politics because it can be very, very dull and very miserable and soul-destroying. And so sometimes you do need a little bit of kind of humour, gallows humour to get you through the day, get yeah. you through the week. Right. But that is a very senior level to start messing about 
Um, and the first thing I knew about it was that Theresa May doesn't watch adverts ever. Right. So there's no way she would have known about that advert. So I was thinking, right, who's advised to just say that? And, uh, you know, if you're the insurance company, I mean, can you get better branding than this in yeah, terms right. of, you know, free publicity? So I, I didn't really like it. I didn't think it, sit, you know, it sat very well with her. But um, it didn't take long. I think it was 24 hours later and it came out that it was mm. a bet. It's not the first time. I mean, often, uh, if it's a really dull speech, uh, a conference, we'll give out, you know, bingo cards and say, play word bingo. Right. All the major words are on here. <laughs> if, you, if you want to play bingo, you get a prize. And right. Just a, just a bit of a laugh, just to get the journalists kind of engaged and kind of, oh, God, this is really, you know, I want to go home to my family. This is the third week I've been on a conference. I've had enough. Uh, so a bit of word bingo does go on. But generally speaking, you don't really do it at that high level. I've not done it to the Prime Minister, but I must confess we have done it. Did you ever do it to lower. Boris? No, no, not, not to <laughs> Boris. But, but early in the days, so like when I was 23, 24 years old, I would do it. I would be at Tory Central Office. Tony Blair was at the height of power, and we would just, you know, sit there having cream cracker eating competitions and just put words in to speeches for a laugh. Right. Well, I must admit, so I mean, I have, I have some, like. I have some sympathy. When I, mean, I was rather foolishly given a radio station to run up in Edinburgh some years ago, myself and my producer used to sit in our, in, in my office and come up with words that the newsreaders had to put into their bulletins, and you know, it was very, very amusing. But I mean, <laughs> presumably Theresa May would not have been happy to discover this either that she was being sort of ridiculed as a, as a result of a bet, because it hasn't gone down well. I mean, almost every other, I think, political leader tweeted once they saw the story and said, these are the people running the country. Look how ridiculous they are. Oh, she would be pretty furious, I should imagine, that she's been kind of hoodwinked in that way. Um, you know, we've, got, we've had other jokes in the past. One of the cabinet ministers, Penny Morden, she was in the, she's a reservist in the Navy. Yeah. And she lost a bet about something that she was, she was some challenge she was given. She failed the challenge. She lost the bet and she had to stand up and talk about a rude word in the House of Commons. And the only way she could find a, uh, a platform to be able to talk about that rude word was to talk about animal welfare and cockles and hens. Yes. And to go through that uh, discussion about animal welfare. And she said the, that word um, about four or five times within that debate. And David Cameron found out about it and he kind of wrapped her over the knuckles and said, very funny, don't do it again. Oh, right. You know, you can get away with it at that level. You probably can't get away with it when um, you are the Prime Minister. And well, again, it's, like, every, it's like everything else. I mean, if everything was going terribly well and we were all having the greatest year ever and, you know, her approval ratings were sky high and we weren't leaving the European Union and it wasn't all going horribly wrong, then you'd probably do a lot more that was fun, couldn't you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the days that I was at number 10, which I didn't really enjoy, but we were 24 points ahead in the polls. Yeah. And you could have some fun about some of the things you did. So, you know, I decided that we weren't seeing the journalists enough. So I organised an Easter egg hunt in the Downing Street Gardens. You know, those days are long gone. You yeah. can whistle for anything like that. You know, they are just surviving day by day, hour by hour, um, week by week. And so they are just kind of in survival mode. They can't think about the nice to have. So, you know, I don't blame them. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't risk that with the Prime Minister. I wouldn't get her that close to ridicule. No, I mean, I think if they, if they're out, if they're out, if they're out in the Downing Street garden hunting for anything at the moment, it ain't Easter eggs, that's for sure. (laughs) It's a plan. It's a grand plan. That's what they're hunting for. That's right. Yeah. Where is that plan? Now, speaking of which, um, we've got a sort of relatively quiet period leading up to the meaningful vote now next, uh, next week on March the 12th. But I mean, there's nobody I can find to talk to that's got any absolute confidence that she's not going to put that one off as well. 
Well, quite. Although, I mean, you know, you're kicking the can down the road. Don't forget the law says that unless we leave with a deal on the 29th of March, we are leaving with no deal. That mm. is in writing. You can't avoid that. You can't just say, oh, I've decided against that no deal nonsense. I'm just going to carry on negotiating, negotiating way into the summer. Doesn't work like that. She is now stuck. We're facing a no-deal scenario on the 29th of March unless she gets a deal. So she can't keep the can down the road for much longer. What I think you'll find is that there are several MPs that didn't vote last time around for her deal, will vote for it this time. But I'm not sure she's got the numbers because, don't forget, it was over 200. It was the biggest defeat in parliamentary history. So there's no way I think she, she can bring over 200. And I think if she brings over, I don't know, 80, then she can go back to the European Union and say, look, my method is working. I am moving them in the right direction. This is going to go to the wire. Stick with me. If there's anything you can give me on the Northern Ireland backstop, then that will get them over the line. And it gives the, the EU a little bit more co- comfort that she's moving in the right direction. But as I say, time's moving out. And what we don't know, really, is if she loses that vote, what happens next? We know that there's potential of another vote the same week. But if she loses that, we, no one knows where she goes next with that. Is it general election territory? Um, I don't think it is. Does she give more of a nod to the second referendum and then by doing that win over those those people in her party that really don't want that? So people are no longer voting for what they want. They're kind of voting against what they don't want. Yeah. And I think the other problem that she's got uh, is that although, um, you know, she's... I mean, there's no way now that it's going to happen on March 29th, is there? I mean, it's going to have to happen later. No. Yeah, I mean, we might get a deal by then, but we have to ratify that deal and we have to put them through Parliament and there's several bills and that leaves parliamentary time. So you're looking at, I think, a minimum of a two-month delay. But don't forget, you've got the all-important EU elections, yeah. which we don't want to be part of because we want to leave the European Union. So what are we going to do when it comes to that? And I think, I mean, if several servant friends of mine say that they've got a plan of action to either put current MEPs they're in yeah. for another couple of months so Farage gets another go at it, plus his payoff. Right. Um, or we put some um, MPs in, because there is a precedent here. When Romania joined the EU halfway through an election cycle, they've just nominated their MPs to be MEPs as well for a couple of months. No, really? So I think that that, that could possibly work here, but it's very messy. We've had two years to sort this out, and we are now scrabbling around uh, to try and get it done by the summer, and it's it's just a very embarrassing look for the government. Well, that's the interesting thing, because I was talking funny enough to a professor at the LSE just a little while ago about these elections. And what I didn't know is they've already allocated, apparently, some of the British MEP seats to other countries, which is a sort of typical EC thing to do, isn't it? Instead of saying, oh, let's save some money by not having these guys. Oh, no, what we'll do is we'll transfer all the seats to, to Italy or something. It's mad. I think we should make them all hot desk, personally. Yeah, worse, absolutely. I I won't work for an employer that wants to hot desk me. So if I can't have my own desk, you can stick your job, quite <laughs> frankly. And I feel exactly the same, you know. I just think we should send them all hot desk and we should give them about eight desks and say, there you go, there's 100 people yeah. fight for it. Well, can't we just see. have one MEP and just, just leave it at that? You know, just send one person there and they can deal with it. Why do we need to have so many, you know? Oh, it's, it's an absolute gravy train. And don't forget, they get massive payoffs too. So they are looking at, you know, four year, up to a four-year payoff. And it'd be, wouldn't it be hilarious if, it's almost like we've made them redundant and then we've called them back for a couple of more months and given them a load more money. It's just utterly ludicrous. It's mad. Absolutely crazy. Well, listen, hopefully, if we don't see you beforehand, we will see you on the day of the meaningful vote, uh, unless you're avoiding Westminster at all costs at that point. <laughs> I can tell you where I'll be. I'll be on a beach in France. Will you? I'm, I'm going oh, you've pulled that one again, have you? 
on a week on a genuine work trip. There's yeah, a big yeah. housing conference yeah, in Cannes, and I'm going to that, which is the worst timing ever. But you know what? Glass of wine there rather than arguing out over here. I'll leave you lot to it. Listen, my mother's 95th birthday is on March the 29th, right? And I've told her there's no way I'm coming to that because uh, there's a party, but I've got to be here. You know, I'm needed elsewhere. What a lovely son. I know. Yeah. What can I do? It's Brexit. You know, you've got to make sacrifices, Casey. Casey Perrier, former director of communications at Number 10. Absolutely fantastic woman. Uh, knows everything there is to know. And then some. Uh, this is Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Rupert Bell and get some sense back into this programme. Rupert, a very good morning to you. (laughs) Morning, Mike. Now, listen, I'm firing all cylinders here because everyone I've had on so far has really annoyed me, apart from the actual members of the public. So I'm hoping that you could be the first guest on this show uh, to, to, to cheer me up. Uh, well, um, if I'm talking to you about Royal Ascot fashion, yeah. um, uh, it might be a question of blind leading the blind there because I'm no fashionista. <laughs> but what I, I do know my Ascot, having been going there for, for well, quite a few years. I've only, so, been, I've only been to Royal Ascot once and I went on what they call, I think, Amateur Day, which was like the Saturday when the Queen Mother used to go. Um, and it was a very nice day and I won a little bit of money and uh, I found Ascot to be slightly less posh than I was expecting it to be. Well, um, now it's a five-day. You might have gone in the old days when it was just a four-day meeting. Yeah. Now five days. Uh, they tra- changed it um, in, a, in a jubilee year. Now it's five days. And actually that Saturday is probably gets the biggest crowd because, surprisingly enough, it's when um, most people can go. But um, it is amazing that there is so much interest in what people are ending up wearing at Royal Ascot. Now, this year, I know you're having a bit of a debate about LGBT issues yeah. and things like that. Well, that's right. Basically, Ascot seems to have taken a role that basically, if you want, to, if you're a woman and you want to wear a top hat and tails, well, get on and wear a top hat and tails. It, it was a, a, something that was set at the um, royal wedding last year. What if I want to? Saw... What if I want to turn up in a in a dress and a fascinator? Well, 
Well, that, I, I, I'm not quite sure that that is quite going to happen, but I, I, I feel sorry for the dress and the fascinator. Well, but, I mean, uh, I think they'd obviously have to be custom made. I don't think there's any off the shelf yeah. stuff I could get. But I, I think what they're trying to do is, you know, w- without trying to make too much fuss of it, they always try and un- sort of do things understated. One or two tweaks to the regulations. I mean, shockingly, now you can wear a dress that can fall just above the knee. Uh-huh. But I, I don't know what the guidelines are on how far above the knee is. And that will be interesting, uh, maybe. But it's about headpieces and fascinators, whether you wear a hat, you and a, fascinators I don't think are allowed in the Royal Enclosure. Right. So it is all just tweaking. But what is amazing about Royal Ascot, whatever enclosure you go to, people want to do the dress up. And I mm. think it's the one chance when people have to sort of uh, go go smart somewhere and feel comfortable doing it. And I'm told there is actually now going to be an enclosure which allows, heaven forbid, a bare midriff. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, that is, uh, uh, I, I think, one of the Queen uh, Anne enclosure, I think, allows it. Um, I, I'm looking at the various lists. Um, you, you, if you go into the um, uh, Queen Anne enclosure, strapless dresses or tops are not permitted. But a hat, headpiece or fastener should be worn at all times is the sort of basic thing. The Windsor enclosure, I think you might be allowed to to show your midriff. But I think around it, you've got to still conform to regulations. Right. I mean, one of the things that we always see now, I suppose, is is the rather excessive drinking that goes on a lot of these racing meetings, unfortunately. And, and more disturbingly lately, and I know you've talked about this before, <laughs> some of the brawling and fighting that goes on. Yes, and, and I know coming into the build-up of last year's Royal Meeting, there were issues not only at an Ascot meeting and, a, and at Goodwood, but they... They do make great efforts. At the bigger meetings, you'll find there's a huge amount of security. And I mean, obviously, next week, uh, lots of us will be descending on Cheltenham, yeah. for, for which, again, is, you know, quite a, a boozy occasion. But they will have plenty of security around to ensure that there are minimum, there is no trouble. I mean, I think the number of rests last year at Cheltenham, you can count on one hand. Yeah. And, but that might be fairly normal if you've got 70,000 people a day descending on Cheltenham there's always going to be an element you know someone somewhere is going to do something stupid but not like they did at Haydock recently well I was going to say I know somebody went to that and they were saying it was Mm. quite terrifying because it is I mean whether you're at a football match or a rugby match or anything but it seems to have kind of become a bit of a thing with certain types of race goers Yes, and I, but I think it's it's a you know now we're seeing increased incidents of sort of bottles being thrown onto football pitches. Yeah. I think there just does seem to be a general. We're going back at times it feels to the dark old days of, of people not behaving in any way responsibly at any sports event, and that's the worry. And racing's got to be very mindful of that because one of the reasons you go racing, you may not know what a front or back of a horse looks like, but you want to go and have a good time with your mates, and that includes having a cocktail or two or three yes, occasionally. Absolutely. But it's knowing when that, that it doesn't need to transgress into um, sort of problems. And I know at Ascot, they have a box beforehand where you can, if you've got anything, a sort of it's a, an amnesty box almost, mm. put stuff in and no questions will be asked. Right. You know, so, and that happens at Ascot. I've seen that happen at Ascot. It happens at other meetings. And I think that's, you know, trying to say, well, no, when you're on our property, don't do anything stupid. And if you're trying to get anything that is illegal into the race course, well, 
put it away in the bin before you get in, because mm. if we find you on the race course, you'll be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely right. Rupert, thanks very much indeed. You have definitely cheered me up, because the great thought about Cheltenham uh, means that spring is definitely in the air. Rupert Bell there telling us all about the new uh, clothing rules at Ascot, that you can do an awful lot more than you used to be able to do, and you'll still get in, uh, for heaven's sake. You don't know you're beautiful. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344-499-1000. We've got some uh, video clips out there right now from the show already. Uh, so go to the Talk Radio uh, Twitter account or go to my Twitter account, at IROMG, uh, and you can see them for yourself. Uh, not only can you listen to this radio station, you can also watch it as well. Let's go to the phone. So Maureen uh, is in Pulborough uh, in West Sussex. Hello, Maureen. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Oh, afternoon, I should say. What do you want to say? Uh, well, I think um, several things, actually, but um, I've never phoned a radio show in my life. And um, what I'd like to say about this uh, debacle that's going on at the moment in Parliament is that if you read um, through the EU uh, website the actual withdrawal agreement that um, Theresa May has drawn up, which is actually a secret, we're not supposed to see the withdrawal agreement, mm. there are many points in that that actually are mirror images of what is in the Lisbon Treaty, which comes into force in 2022, mm. which means we are stuck forever in the EU with no power. We have to give them 2.3 billion a year and rising. We lose our courts. We lose everything in the Lisbon Treaty. We lose our ability to any trade deal, WTO. We literally are totally powerless. So when they say, MPs, that... It makes us a vassal state, the withdrawal agreement, and uh, it's this, that and the other. What they're not doing is actually pulling out the points in the withdrawal agreement that actually mirror what's in the Lisbon Treaty already. But these are the things that a lot of the people who want to have um, a no-deal Brexit or a much harder Brexit are also objecting to, isn't it? Aren't they? I mean, they're saying it's not just about the backstop in Northern Ireland. There are many other things in the withdrawal agreement that they don't like. Well, exactly, but they're not specific, specifically saying what those things are. So I think that the days of saying that we're all so stupid, we don't understand anything, and please don't bother us with facts, you know, other than this sort of press bombardment we've had. Mm. Uh, about... Don't you fear, though, as well, Maureen, that it's all about kind of, you know, tactics to basically end... For those who want a no-deal Brexit, their tactics are to play for a no-deal Brexit. So, for example... You know, if uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg makes out that they've done OK and they've got the, the, the backstop situation sorted, he may then go, well, I'll tell you what, that's all very well. Now I want this. I don't think you can, um, quite frankly. Well, what we've proved is that anything's possible because everything keeps getting put off, everything keeps getting delayed. All of the, 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 the deadlines that we were told were deadlines are no longer deadlines. But once we go into the European Parliament recess in April, we're not going to... We have to put up M MEPs. Yeah, but that doesn't mean we're not leaving the European Union. Uh, well, if we're putting up MEPs, um, then we've got to fund that. And how can we go be going through an extended Article 50 process at the same time? Well, that's the point. Nobody knows what's going to happen. I've just been having two conversations, one with Katie Perrier and one with that uh, professor at the LSE. And nobody actually knows what's going to happen if there are European elections and we're still in Europe. But we do know what's coming down the line. Very do we? Is the Lisbon Treaty. 
Well, yeah, but that's a way. That's a long way off, and we haven't even got anywhere close to ever uh, having that conversation. That's my point. I don't think you should worry too much about that, Maureen. What, the Lisbon Treaty coming in? Yeah, I don't think you should worry about it. If we keep getting extensions... But we won't, though. But we, what makes you think we'll keep getting extensions? Because nothing is decided in nearly three years. Why would it be decided now? Well, because it has to be. It will be decided. Trust, trust me. One thing that I can tell you is that we are leaving the European Union. You may not like the way we leave it, but we will definitely leave. But the withdrawal agreement isn't leaving. It's not just the backstop, it's the rest of it. Well, it's not finished yet. They haven't finished negotiating it. Uh, well, they're not going to negotiate, are they? That's been fairly Well, you off. seem to know an awful lot more about this than anybody else, Maureen, and I appreciate that you are very uh, firm on this, but I, th- I think you're wrong. I think it, we will leave. I think there is an awful lot of game playing going on, and I think eventually we will get to the point where we have a form of uh, agreement, which then means that we leave with a deal. And I think you may not like the deal, but it will be a deal. But in a withdrawal agreement, it says that none of the terms of the withdrawal agreement can be discussed. Yeah, but that's rubbish, because we're discussing them. Well, that, you're only discussing it because it's actually come off the EU website. Yes, well, my point is is that all of the things that they say you can't do, we have, we have usually found a way to do, and that's what we'll be continuing to do. So you're confident, are you? That- I am, actually, yeah, I am. And I think as long as we leave, then the, the, the process begins, because don't forget, this will take a long time. I mean, people are now beginning, the conversation's now changing. It's not from we're going to try and stay in. Even those who would like to stay in are saying this is going to take a long time. So they've now accepted that we're going to leave. And I think it will probably take a few years of negotiating to get all the bits and pieces in place that we want. But it's definitely going to happen. But that means we have to actually get rid of the Lisbon Treaty, which comes in if we're still negotiating leaving under withdrawal arrangement. Well, everything that we have to do, we will do. I don't. I don't think that's going to prove to be any more difficult than everything else. But how? But we've got lots and lots of locks in that withdrawal agreement. I don't think we... you should worry about that. I mean, if we're leaving the organisation, what they have got us signed up to also uh, ceases to exist for us. You know, you can't leave the European Union and still be in the Lisbon Treaty, can you? Well, it is. It's in the withdrawal agreement. Yeah, I know, but you, what I'm saying so is, is we, we will negotiate. We're, we're going around in circles here, Maureen. We, we will negotiate a way out of it. it. I don't think you should worry about that. But we shouldn't worry about the fact that what they sign up to a withdrawal agreement is actually binding. No, because nothing that has ever been so said... image of what's in the Lisbon Treaty, virtually. Well, I don't, you're obsessing about it, Maureen. The point is, is that we will, will the get... The withdrawal agreement is actually uh, is a way of sneakily putting in things that are already in the Lisbon Treaty. <laughs> well, you know, that, again, all of these things will be negotiated out. That's the whole point of leaving the European Union. There's, we're not going to leave the European Union and then just stay in it. That wouldn't be right, would it? Well, according to the withdrawal agreement, if we sign it, it's exactly that. Well, we're not signing this withdrawal agreement. We're still negotiating it. That's my point. I think we've been told by Parliament that we take no deal off the table. They're fairly confident that will come off. Well, that hasn't happened yet. No, it hasn't. Well, so what are you worried about? I think I'm worried because I think in the last three years, certainly, we've seen so much dishonesty. Yes, I agree with that. ...that we don't feel any faith. And I agree with that. And I don't blame you for having no faith, but I have faith, not just in the fact that it will happen, but in the fact that in the end they can't avoid it happening. As much as there might be many people inside Parliament who would like to stay in the European Union, we both know that to be true, you know, they cannot, av- they cannot avoid the will of the people. That is the bottom line, Maureen. 
Yes, but then their spin is that it's not the will of the people, that we've all been taken in and when we know... Yeah, but that's all rubbish. That's all just propaganda. You know, there's not going to be another second <laughs> referendum because they haven't got enough of a, of a majority to get that through Parliament. This is going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen on March 29th, but it will happen. Well, if you're confident about that, I will phone you back when it does. Please do. And please look, and, and, and I appreciate your call, Maureen. Thank you very much indeed. Maureen's very worried. She's the first person I've actually heard to be that worried about not leaving properly. Let's go back to the phones and talk to Laura, uh, who's in London. Hello, Laura. Yeah, hi, good afternoon, Mike. Hello, how are you doing? Um, well, I'm all right, thank you. Um, Maureen, she's absolutely correct. We are not leaving Hotel California. But how do you know that? Uh, well, it's pretty obvious. There are so many MPs who are for Remain, and in the EU, they're all for Remain. And the government over here spent millions of pounds leafleting all our homes to persuade us on Remain. Yeah, that didn't work, did it? They spent how long? Two or three years keeping us there. They are intent on us not leaving. They're not. They'd like to be. I agree with you. They'd like to be, but they can't be. And that's the difference, because I think if you watch... Now, if you watch the, 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 the sort of the body language and you watch the language that's being used as well, it is subtly changing. And it has changed even over the past three months. We are no longer discussing, you know, whether we have a second referendum, whether we stay in in some way, shape or form. It's now all about how we leave. And that, it, that, and that will move closer it's and closer. Not, it, they can call it a leave. It's not going to be a leave. It's not going to be a leave in the sense of leaving. It's well, just, I, think, it's, I think you're just being pedantic, Laura. No, no. They are being... Look, they... they it's obvious. If, we, if they wanted to leave, we would have, we would have got up and left. The There's fact a, that yeah. they keep talking about we, we can never leave without a deal, that tells you all you need to know. That's they true. don't want us to leave. No, that's true. I, I agree with you. And, However, and, that doesn't and so mean... now we're talking that, about a deal to stay, no, not a not. deal to leave. No, no, we're not. We're talking about a deal to leave, Laura. No, we're not. Yes, we are. It's like a carry-on film, this. If, if we, they would have kept walking out the door without a deal on the table. The fact is... They have kept it on the table. It's not on the table. Yeah, it is. Even Labour is... Even Theresa, Theresa, Theresa May has refused to remove it. Even Keir Starmer and Emily Thornbury and all that lot are pushing for 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 us not to be able to leave with with with. When uh, you say even Keir Starmer, what do you mean? Oh my God! Don't talk you, to me about him. No, don't. Exactly, don't even. Let's not think about him no. and Emily Thornbury oh, pushing for a name. There's nothing worse than rich, overprivileged socialists. Oh, he's not a socialist. Hey, eh? he's not a socialist. Yeah, he is. No, he's not. Of course he is. What gives you the impression he's a socialist? Well, I know that he is. He's in the Labour Party for a start. No, you can... Well, yeah, Tony Blair was in the Labour Party. He was a yeah, Tory. Yeah, Tony Blair was the only electable leader of the Labour Party in many a, a decade. He was a Tory. He was a lot better than the lot they got just, now. Just as the Clintons are Republicans. I see. Yeah. Now, listen, Laura, I'd love to keep this going, but I've got to talk to somebody else, and we're nearly out of time. But do call me again, because we could talk about this forever. I think Laura's gone. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 